Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the 50th chapter, right at the very end of the book of Genesis, beginning with verse 22. This morning we are drawing to a close our study of the life of Joseph, the great hero of our faith. The last third of the book of Genesis is devoted to an account of his life. And we have been studying this for uh, eight separate sermons, but seven weeks. Uh, We've taken a break for a couple of series in the month of December on stewardship and obviously on the advent of our Lord and his birth in Bethlehem. But we return for our final sermon today, ending our study in the final chapter of the book of Genesis. The first week we studied Joseph, we looked at the relationships inside the home that Joseph Grew up in, and we saw that what was characteristic of that home was hatred against Joseph by uh, his brothers. We looked at some of the reasons for the hatred. It might have been that Joseph could have done some things differently. Certainly, his father and brothers thought so. But from the very beginning, whatever adversity Joseph suffered, we've seen that God used it to strengthen him in his faith and to create and uh, ironclad commitment on his part to walk the path that God had revealed to him. The second week, we examined the episode between Joseph and Potiphar's wife in which Joseph was tempted to commit adultery in Egypt. And we saw that week that there was a specific plan of action that Joseph took to avoid this adultery, that he spoke plainly against the temptation, that he refused to even be near the source of the temptation and that finally he didn't consider his dignity such an important part, but he left his clothes in the woman's hand. He ran. He just had absolute commitment to avoid uh, committing this terrible crime against both Potiphar and God of adultery. The third week we sat with Joseph in prison during his long years of confinement which were due to his rejection of Potiphar's wife's advances. And there in prison with Joseph, we saw that freedom is something which is only rarely understood accurately in our world. That the modern world looks at freedom as being able to be completely self-determined. The modern world could not understand a man who would be in prison and say he was free. They would say, well, you don't have a choice what long-distance service to use. Um, you need to be able to get in your car and drive, to take vacations, to spend money, to have a checking account, to use a credit card, to... uh, You need to be self-determined. And yet we saw that while Joseph was in prison, he was free because he had refused to sin. And the Bible says that when he was in prison that God was with him. The fourth week, we looked at Joseph's testimony in chapter 41 that he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my sufferings. So you see this development of the theme of suffering in Joseph's life. And then what we've seen as we've gone through the life of Joseph is made explicit by this statement of Joseph. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And so Joseph at that point is lifted up out of the dreary dungeon and placed as the second in command over the whole nation of Egypt. He had not refused to suffer. 
but rather he had remained convinced during his suffering that God had not abandoned him and was still using the suffering to bring about his will. And the obvious application to us is that when we suffer, we are not to view this as an extraordinary thing, but rather as the ordinary means that God uses to accomplish his will in this world. If he used the suffering, the humiliation of his son and ultimately his crucifixion and death and burial to accomplish the purposes of redemption, how much more is he going to use similar suffering in our lives to accomplish his purpose? Uh, I'm going to jump outside of myself for a second and I'm going to observe myself preaching to you. I feel absolutely hopeless to convince you of what I just said. I don't know how to get it in the heads of Americans that suffering is God's purpose. It seems that I and all my congregations have an absolutely impossible time learning this truth. And so sometimes I think, let's all become Catholics for a year. Because Catholics will teach us that. It's, it's one of the great shames of Protestants that we have lost the biblical doctrine of the purposes of God in suffering. And yet Catholics, when you go into their church, the one thing you'll see all over the place is blood. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, when we come to the end of the sermon, you're going to see this theme again struck by Joseph. And, uh, boy, if you raise your children and if you relate to one another in such a way as you think that every day in every way the world is going to get better and better, and particularly for Christians, and that you can tell a Christian because he has a smile on his face, uh, I don't think you know anything about Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And let me tell you, if you suffer right now, it is your privilege. If you've lost children, it is your privilege. If you have been taught the nature of life in this world, where we have come under the fall, and if you have seen sickness and misery and death, if you have seen separation from loved ones, if you have seen betrayal by sinful men, it is your privilege because then you're driven to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one in whom all joy is resident, the one, the only one who can give us what we need. Our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is not in the escape of suffering that he promises. Um, I, I, I have, as all of you have, certain moments in my life where this truth and my inability to teach it to people becomes very clear. And uh, one of those moments is teaching my son how to write papers. There was a period of time where Mary Lee and I uh, acted as if we were homeschooling. I guess we're acting like that again now with Hannah. But anyhow, we had Joseph at home for a while, and he sat at a table and read and did math. And I I had a job of teaching him to write papers. And so I told him he was going to write two papers, one on the heresy of Arianism and... uh, The other, the heresy of Pelagianism. And the reason I assigned those two topics is because I can never keep them straight in my mind. And I figured if I had to work with him on it, I'd learn it. (laughs) So he writes his first paper and he brings it to me and it's pathetic. And I tell him it's pathetic and to get to work on it again. Well, he took that one pretty well and came back with it again. I made some suggestions and it was still pathetic and I told him that. Well, then the tears made a hint of coming. 
Well, the third time I sent him back telling him his paper was pathetic and making suggestions, the tears were streaming. And I think it was four or five times that I had him redo that paper. Well, about the fourth time, he was righteously indignant and the tears were streaming. And it hit me at that moment. How is it that we think that everything worth getting in life requires suffering and pain except the pursuit of God's truth? Because he was writing about the nature of Scripture and its truth. And we expect that to come easily. And then we expect to have to beat our heads against the desk with a pencil and a calculator just to file our income taxes. And the forms are mind-numbingly complicated. And sometimes we have to hire experts to help us. But when it comes to God's truth and living a godly life, we think it just comes, right? So I said to Joseph, I said, Joseph, you know, do you think that, 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 that I'm wrong to be requiring you to keep doing this paper? Because I was forcing him to come up with some actual footnotes, you know? and some quotes and some substance to the paper. And he didn't say, yes, you're wrong, but he indicated that he thought I was being unfair. And so I, I mentioned a young man that he knew of, a guy named Nathan Potsikoff, who was playing for the South uh, football team. I said, I said, tell me something. As Nathan plays football at South High School, do you think that Nathan becomes better at playing football ju just by hanging out? Or do you think that maybe there are aspects of him being trained to play football that are tough? Well, he didn't answer because it was too pointed. And I said, you know, when he gets out on the field, what does he do? He goes up and, and he hits the blocking machine. And he hits it again and again and again and again. And he doesn't go up to the coach and cry and say it's hurting. I said, so how is it in our culture that we understand suffering for sports I, I'm circulating in the church to a number of you men an article about Lance Armstrong, a profile of him. And the whole profile, I hope you'll read this. I know you don't read. It's easier to watch TV. But for once, read something. Read this article. I'm going to give it out to the men at the Wednesday morning prayer group this week. The whole point of the article is Lance Armstrong says that his life is a life of suffering. He is addicted to suffering. Why? Because it will get him the Tour de France. Okay? Now, how can we write about this? How can we do it in music? How can we do it every place? But when it comes to Joseph, we think, well, you know, Joseph was an extraordinary man. He suffered a lot. But then at the end, it was all good because he was number two in command. Well, no, you haven't gotten to the end of Joseph's life yet. We'll get to the end of his life today. And you'll see it doesn't end on an upbeat at all. It's kind of a minor key end. Suffering is something that is constant in the lives of those that God loves. Those he loves, he chastens, the Bible says. And yet, we're Americans, and Americans have more conveniences in their car than they have in their homes. It's leather. It blows just the right angle. You don't even have to crank the window. You touch a button. The tunes are nice. You know, stereo. Um, and if it's too humid, you can turn on the air conditioner when you have on the heat. And it won't even be humid in your car. And a little armrest on the right and an armrest on the left. And a little thing up there to keep the glare from coming in at the top of the window. And even little things that slide out of the visor so that when the sun comes right by the rearview mirror, you can push that little thing over and it'll keep the sun from getting in your eyes. Well, that's not the Christian life. Christian life is not a nice car. 
It's a beater. (laughs) But the joy is we do have a resting place. It's sad that we don't get it here, but we do have a resting place. It was Joseph's testimony that in prison God was with him and that God made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. Uh, Then our fifth sermon, we looked at the long-awaited and joyful reunion between Joseph and his brothers. And we saw that just as Joseph had experienced God's love and forgiveness and grace in his own life, he extended that forgiveness to his brothers. And the application here, we've all just come through family reunions. And because families are the most intimate bond that there is other than the church, those are the places that forgiveness is needed most. And we're all very, very mindful, having gone through the last two weeks, of what has happened in our homes that needs to be forgiven. And if you need to be forgiven or if you need to forgive, Joseph is a perfect model of what we are commanded to do in the New Testament, where in Ephesians 4 we are told, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. What a wonderful privilege we have as Christians to forgive others. Then, last time we studied Joseph, we looked at the legacy that a dying father left his son. Jacob left his children an inheritance that would abide forever leaving them assurances that after he, their father, was gone, God would still be with them. And he told them to look forward to the promised land because the time would come when God would lead them back. Now this morning, in our seventh week of study, we're going to look at the last five verses of the book of Genesis. And at one verse in the book of Hebrews, commenting on this Genesis passage, here we have an account of Joseph's death, And then a New Testament opening up, a New Testament exposition on these few verses at the end of Genesis. First, let's read Genesis 50, verses 22 to 26. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Then would you flip to the back of the Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read one verse there commenting on these verses at the end of Genesis. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. I encourage you to always remind yourself that the New Testament, when it comments on the Old Testament, is not the author of Hebrews commenting. It's not Paul commenting. 
It's the Holy Spirit commenting on what the Holy Spirit has written. There's a very strong tendency on our part to sort of personalize everything written in Scripture. And certainly God used men to do the work of writing Scripture. But when we have the New Testament commenting on the Old Testament, we have an absolutely perfectly authoritative word about the significance of that Old Testament passage because it's the Holy Spirit giving it to us. So here's what the Holy Spirit says about these verses in Genesis. It says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Quite an interesting comment, isn't it? Gave orders concerning his bones. This is the word of God. Now, these verses, particularly this verse from Hebrews, occur in a passage which has as a main theme all the actions of faith of the Old Testament men and women. So it's called the the Great Hall of Faith. And we are told in this verse that the main lesson to be learned from the account of the death of Joseph is a lesson of faith. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us here that God has shown us the meaning of real faith by showing us the last words of Joseph. Now, the first thing we're struck by when we read the words of Joseph as he approaches death is how similar his words are to the words that his father had said when he died. Joseph said, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, or Israel, his father had said, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. Almost identical words, aren't they? And it's funny how we find ourselves repeating the words and the noises and the actions of our parents whether it's little cooing noises that we make to the babies, gitchy, gitchy goo, lectures at the beginning of dates that we first received ourselves from our parents when we went on dates, or also, sadly, habits of neglecting our children when we come in from work or neglecting our spouses when it comes to expressions of affection. We are the tree that gave us birth. And it's exasperating to see this in ourselves at times. At other times, it's a great joy. Well, you look at Joseph with his father and you see what caused him to say what he said at his own deathbed. He carried on his father's faith and he comforted others with the same words with which he himself had been comforted. There was a tradition of family faith passed on from father to son. And Joseph himself acknowledges this tradition when he describes the promise of God. The promise, he says, was first to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to our father Jacob. Now, there's a world of sermons right here. And it's a number of sermons that we as a church need to hear because we have committed ourselves to having children. And this is an act of obedience. I read an article somebody sent me this last week from the New York Times which says that the birth rate in northern Italy is now 1.1 child per family. And Taylor's question is, how do you have 0.1 of a child? So we spent some time explaining that to him this week. Generally, it's somebody who's very, very, very short. (laughs) Well, it's kind of hard explaining that. 
1.1, that's the fertility level in northern Italy. Spain, I think, is the lowest in, in Western Europe. But all across Europe, they're not at replacement level. And so they're doing the same thing America is doing. The only way we are able to not lose population is the massive immigration that's going on in our country. And so I want to start out by saying, praise God, one of the chief joys I have as a pastor is to have a congregation that gives itself to having children. And this is not a small act of obedience, and it's something that gives me joy. It's something that gives everybody that watches it joy. It doesn't mean that all of our children are always joyful. Um, doesn't mean all our moments in our homes are special, <laughs> but it is a joy. And when we get together at family reunions at the Taylors, I think I've even gotten to the point where I can just say it's a joy now. Um, all these little ones, another one was born on New Year's Day. Uh, what, how many is it now? We don't even keep track anymore. Huh? 71? So mom and dad Taylor, these are their, this is their clan. They gave themselves to children. And yet, we also must recognize that having children is a joy, but having children is also an act of faith. And anyone who goes about having children is making a statement of faith. And what is that statement? The statement is, if they are believers, the statement is that God will be their God and the God of their children. And it's very easy for us as parents to get to the point where we look around us and we see how often our children do disobey and rebel against us and thereby often rebel against God. Not every rebellion against a parent is a rebellion directly against God. There are some times where children are called actually to disobey their parents and we have had this in our congregation because their parents were giving them orders in major areas that were contrary to the will of God. That does happen at times. But we do see so often in Christian homes uh, rebellion against God, and it's very easy for us to think, well, you know, if I have any children that walk in the ways of God as they grow up, I'll be happy for them, but I'm not going to claim the covenant promises over my children, because look at how many children don't become Christians, how many children don't walk after God. You don't see this with Joseph. You don't see this with Israel, Jacob. You don't see this with Abraham. You don't see this across the patriarchs. What you see is from father to son to son to son. That's what you see. And as a congregation, that's the first lesson for us here. We see Joseph making the same confession of faith as he dies, that his father made. That should teach us something very practical. And that is, there should be an expectation on our part. We should storm the gates of heaven, and then we should command our descendants that our God is to be their God. Did you notice that? Did you notice that this old man had the audacity to get his descendants around him and make them take what? Did you, did you see it? He made them take what? An oath. Can you imagine that today? You're in a hospital room. There's an old man dying. He's got his family in the room. A nurse walks in as he commands them to take an oath. The nurse would go, boy, this guy is a patriarch. 
and that's not a positive term. <laughs> They'd think something was weird, wouldn't they? They'd think, doesn't he know that it's time for the next generation to be the leaders? He's just supposed to be a gurgling child at this point. Well, Joseph was not a gurgling child in his second childhood at this point. He commanded his descendants, what? That they were to have his God as their God. And he placed them under an oath. It is a radical thing. Let me ask, how many of you have seen anybody, personally seen anybody die, placing their descendants on an oath to have God as their God? Now, I might be wrong, but is there anybody here who has actually seen this happen in your own life? Anybody, wave your hand. Okay, not one person. Our expectation today is that each man and each woman make their own decision. You know what I'm saying about spiritual matters? None of us would have the audacity of commanding our descendants to have our God be their God and to carry on the covenant promises. Well, here we see the model. In Genesis 15:7, God had said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to the Chaldeans. And then he said this, to give you this land to possess it. And then a little later in chapter 15, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And so all we see here is we see that Jacob and Joseph have both heard this word from God to Abraham and they have said, this is God's word to us, and we will believe it, we will act on it, and we will place our descendants, in Joseph's case, under oath that they will follow up on this promise. And I will not allow my bones to become Egyptian bones. I will not allow myself to become an Egyptian. Now, stop and think about this for a second. What would it have meant for Joseph to become an Egyptian? How about number two in command? I mean, was it because Joseph had a bitter experience in Egypt? Absolutely not. At this point in Joseph's life, he probably could have had a pyramid built for himself. There's no place on earth that has done a better job of honoring the dead than Egypt. Joseph could have been the number one Egyptian. He could have had them worshiping him and remembering him to the year 2003. He could have had an exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry. It could have been him that we saw mummified. The Egyptians were no lack. They had no lack in the ability. Uh, Duncher says this about them. He says, No nation has devoted so much care and labor to the preservation of the corpses, whether of people or of sacred animals, as the Egyptians. It was almost the first duty of the living to attend to the dead. Diodorus says this, quote, The Egyptians speak of the dwellings of the living as a lodging, but of the tombs of the dead as eternal habitations, because the dead pass an endless time there. Hence, they bestow less toil upon their houses, but their tombs they furnish in a most extraordinary manner. No place on earth do we have such tremendous funerals and monuments to the dead as we have in Egypt. But Joseph, leader of the Egyptian empire, 
who could have had the most elaborate funeral in the world, chose to remain, what? Unburied. Isn't that something? He turned aside from the pomp and circumstance of Egypt and took as his own hope the day that his people would be carried by God back to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he told his ancestors, he commanded them to take an oath to keep his body with them unburied until God had fulfilled his promise. Now at this point, a little side note. This is a text that's used by Roman Catholics to justify uh, the business of, uh, um, what's it called, Rita? You know, all the bones. Relics. Relics. That's the word I was looking for, yeah. Relics. And I hope you all see that we're not being taught to have a cult of bones here. Joseph isn't telling them to worship his bones Joseph is telling them not to allow him to stay an Egyptian, but to make him a follower of the only true God by having his bones connected to the promise and not allowing them to be left in Egypt, okay? This is not about his descendants worshiping his bones. It's not a justification for all of the industry of uh, shrouds and bones and, and, and little pieces of wood that has been a constant in the Roman Catholic Church for 2,000 years now. Coming back to Joseph, let us note that he is confessing his faith and that you and I also confess our faith. We do it in a variety of ways, but the most frequent way we do it is verbally. We repeat the Lord's Prayer together. We sing hymns. We share prayer requests. We read the Bible out loud with our families. We recite the Apostle and the Nicene Creed. We learn the Children's Catechism. But each of these expressions of faith in God are verbal. They're words only. Joseph saw the need in his death, as in his life, to back up his words with actions. Joseph's father had left it with words, but Joseph himself attached his words to actions. His faith took on a physical aspect by this command that he was to be carried back to the promised land, his bones. And this is in line with what the Bible tells us, not just to be hearers of the word, but, but to be doers of the word. Again, I asked some time ago if any of us can remember a time when a patriarch of a Christian family that we have known and seen has placed his descendants under oath as an act of faith. And I want to read this morning... Uh, a document that uh, Dad Taylor has passed on to us as an act of obedience to, and I don't know what the exact count is, but something like his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or something. Um, it comes from his ancestor, John Lee, and it was given on January 13, 1716 to his descendants. All right? And all of the tailors have had this passed on to them by Dad as he prepares to die. Dad Taylor. And this is what it says. Uh, last will and testament. He, he said to his descendants nearly three centuries ago, uh, actually, first I have to read a preface by Dad that he has given to us. Dad Taylor says, nearly three centuries ago, John Lee gave this dying charge to his children and to all of his descendants. I am one of those descendants, so this charge is for me and for my children and grandchildren, and now I pass it on to include you. So here it is. Uh, 
John Lee wrote, I charge my dear children that you fear God and keep his commandments and that you uphold his public worship with diligence and constantly as you can and that you be constant in the duty of secret prayer twice every day all the days of your lives and all you that become to be heads of families that you be constant in family prayer praying evenings and mornings with your families besides your prayer at meal and that you in your prayers you pray for converting grace for yourselves and others and that God will show you the excellency of Christ and cause you to love him and believe in him and show you the evil of sin and make you hate forever and turn from it and that you never give over till you have obtained converting grace from God. Furthermore, I charge you with that you choose death rather than deny Christ in any wise or any degree and serve God in the way you was brought up in and avoid all evil company lest you be led into a snare and temptation. Also be careful to avoid any excess in drinking and all other sin and profaneness and be always dutiful to your mother and be kind to one another. This I leave in charge to all my posterity to the end of the world, charging every person of them to keep a copy of this my charge to my children. This is my dying charge to my children. It's interesting. You might remember that I have said a couple of times this past year that I believe we ought to pray for our children that God would give them the blessing of knowing and hating their own sin and knowing and loving the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I read this, I realize that I think part of the reason I've been making that prayer is because I have heard this charge. I wish that I were faithfully doing all of this charge, but isn't it interesting how a charge like this can live on here in the year 2003? 17 to 18 to 19 to almost 300 years. 300 years. This charge has come down to us. And what's interesting about that is that it has also been almost 300 years exactly that Joseph and his family have been waiting for the promise that God gave to Abraham to be fulfilled. And uh, we have centuries. This would be, uh, it would be 2000, so it would be, uh, 1703. It would be 1703, and that's how long ago the promise was given to Abraham. And here Joseph is 300 years later, and Joseph has only spent 17 years in the promised land, okay? The whole rest of his life he's been in Egypt, but when it comes to the time of his death, both with his words and with his actions, he's saying, I'm not an Egyptian. I belong to God, and don't ever let me be buried here. My bones are to go back to God's land, and that's where they're to be buried. So we can say that Joseph died making a loud, in fact, you might say a blaring testimony of faith, that he was a son of Abraham whose true home was in the land God had promised. So let me ask, are we dying demonstrating that we have found a home and identity as Americans? Now, you weren't expecting me to say that, were you? You were expecting me to say 
that we are Christians, that we have heaven as our home. But I think that if you were to look at our wills and testaments, at the way that we handle ourselves at the ends of our lives, I think what you would see is very clear statements that we have an abiding place. Now, if you know the Bible, you'll know that I'm contradicting it by saying that because the Bible says here we have no abiding place. And yet, if you looked at our lives, what indications would there be that this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? I'm reminded of a man that my father knew who was a wealthy, uh, a wealthy second, third, or fourth generation businessman in New England and had a, a, a very uh, large uh, role financially in supporting the work of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship when it first started in this country. And he had been very faithful in giving sacrificially to this work as it was started. It came time for him to die, and his, uh, his main contact with InterVarsity was a man whose job was to raise funds for the people that did the work of InterVarsity. At that time, no InterVarsity staff worker had to raise their own money. It was handled by men whose job it was to go and present the need and others would uh, support that need. So as it came time for him to do his last will and testament, this man went to him and they talked about the future of InterVarsity and his, his, uh, his, his estate. And the InterVarsity uh, man said to him, uh, you know, what do you plan to do with your money when you die? And he said, well, I'm going to give it to my children. And the InterVarsity man said, who gave you the money? And the man said, God. And he said, well, if, he gave, if God gave it to you, why would you not give some of it to God when you die? And he said, well, if I did that, my children would, would, would despise me. Now, there are two interesting things about this. The first interesting thing is that the spiritual wasteland that my father observed in the lives of those children after that man died was a sickening thing. And none of us are surprised to hear that. If you die testifying that what matters to you is this world and the financial security of your, of your descendants, but in this case it wasn't security, it was riches beyond imagination. And that's the thing that is sort of the medium of exchange between you and your children. All right? You don't expect that it's going to go well for those children spiritually, do you? And it did not. It was very, very sad. My father got to observe it. The other interesting thing is, and I, this is the part I very much appreciate, uh, that man from InterVarsity never spoke to that other man again. Now, I'm sure that he could have milked that estate for some money. He could have played a guilt trip and gotten that man to give something. But, you know, he decided that he was no longer going to have any commitment to and any living off of the wealth of a man who would make that kind of statement and be so godless as he came to the end of his life. What he was really saying was, I'm an Egyptian. I don't care about the promises. You put my bones here. And in fact, build me a pyramid. Because if we don't do that, the people will despise us. You know, We need to be concerned about our loved ones. We need to do what will make them happy. And yet this InterVarsity man said, uh, he was done. Uh, and it wasn't because of any personal animosity or opposition he had to that man. It was just, if this is the decision that this man is making at the end of his life, it will not honor God for InterVarsity to be dependent upon his money for its survival. 
And so he went someplace else. In Hebrews 11, we read, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I want to remind us as we go into a year of building a new structure. The new structure is not the church. The new structure is a home for the church, a physical home. But it is certainly not an abiding place. Moving on to verse 13 of Hebrews 11. All these, speaking of the great hall of faith, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, what? They desire what? A better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. What a statement of Scripture. God is not ashamed to be called their God. I mean, isn't that... Isn't that like an unbelievably beautiful statement? God is not ashamed. I mean, look at us. How could God not be ashamed to call us his people and to call himself our God? Well, God is pleased to use faith as the tool by which all of his blessings come to us. And what blessing do you desire more than to hear from his lips, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that exactly what it's saying here? God is not ashamed to call himself their God. Well, how do you get it? You get it by not sucking up to this world. To the television programs, to the cars, to the vacations. Not writing as if you agree with your professor when you certainly do not, that's being ashamed. You get it by dying and giving commands to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren that by God, God is to be their God. In fact, commanding them to take an oath that he will be their God and then tying physical things like money, possessions. It would be very hard for me not to understand this passage because of the great privilege I have of having a father-in-law who could have given millions of dollars to his children and grandchildren, but has been very, very careful that all of his property goes to the work of the Lord. Uh, and I should mention his wife, who equally owns Tyndale House and all the property that he owns. Acres and acres in Wheaton, you know what that would go for. And then Tyndale House, and guess what? When he dies, you know where all that stuff goes? It all goes to the distribution. Most of it actually will go um, into, uh, the largest part of it, into a work that Wycliffe has of using uh, people in different, in different language groups to translate the Bible into their own tongues. It's called the Seed Project. And it's a special aspect of Wycliffe's uh, Bible translation work. 
But boy, I praise God for a man who commands his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that they are to make God their God. Um, And then has financial money, physical property uh, aspects that make it clear that this is not just a symbolic thing he's saying, but that this strikes at the heart of the home. What a purity there is in that home. Won't be any fighting when he dies. You know why? It don't matter. It's gone. (laughs) Nobody has any money that they can fight for. And everybody's known that for about 20 years. So, when you die, and if you're not fixing to die right now, when you go home, are you going to confess your faith? Are you going to live with your children in such a way that you place them under oath to make your God their God? And how physically will you demand that they follow up on the commitment they've made? Will you require them to carry your bones with them back to the promised land? You say, well, I'm not... I'm not sure that's the application for me. I say, yeah, you're right. It's not the application. So what practical, concrete, physical application does it have in your own? Movies. What movies are sitting on the shelves next to your television? Does your faith have any practical application? Uh, How are you going to spend your time this afternoon? You're going to be at the nursing home. You're going to require your children to go to the nursing home. Oh, heaven forbid. (laughs) We don't want our children to be around old people who are dying. I think it's great to take children to nursing homes because the the old people brighten up and I brighten up and my children brighten up. (laughs) What more could you ask on a Sunday afternoon? Uh, Well, I I take it back. Is there football? (laughs) All right. I'll let the Holy Spirit apply it. I'll back off now. (laughs) Let's pray.